Section 6 of the Book of Sir Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Sir Marco Polo, the Venetian, Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 1, by Ristocello di Pisa. Translated by Henry Yule. Introductory Notices, Part 6. The Jealousies and Naval Wars of Venice and Genoa. Lambda Doria's Expedition to the Adriatic. Battle of Curzola and Imprisonment of Marco Polo by the Genoese. Jealousies, too characteristic of the Italian communities, were, in the case of the three great trading republics of Venice, Genoa, and Pisa, aggravated by commercial rivalries, whilst, between the two first of those states, and also between the last two, the bitterness of such feelings had been augmenting during the whole course of the 13th century. The brilliant part played by Venice in the conquest of Constantinople, 1204, and the preponderance she thus acquired on the Greek shores, stimulated her arrogance and the resentment of her rivals. The three states no longer stood on a level as bidders for the shifting favor of the emperor of the East. By treaty, not only was Venice established as the most important ally of the empire, and is mistress of a large fraction of its territory, but all members of nations at war with her were prohibited from entering its limits. Though the Genoese colonies continued to exist, they stood at a great disadvantage, where their rivals were so predominant and enjoyed exemption from duties, to which the Genoese remained subject. Hence, jealousies and resentments reached a climax in the Levantine settlements, and this colonial exervation reacted on the mother states. A dispute which broke out at Acre in 1255 came to a head in a war which lasted for years and was felt all over Syria. It began in a quarrel about a very old church called St. Saba's, which stood on the common boundary of the Venetian and Genoese states in Acre, and this flame was blown by other unlucky occurrences. Acre suffered grievously. Venice at this time generally kept the upper hand, beating Genoa by land and sea, and driving her from Acre altogether. Four ancient porphyry figures from St. Saba's were sent in triumph to Venice, and with their strange devices still stand at the exterior corner of St. Mark's, towards the Ducal Palace. But no number of defeats could extinguish the spirit of Genoa, and the tables were turned when in her wrath she allied herself with Michael Paleologus to upset the feeble and tottering Latin dynasty, and with it the preponderance of Venice on the Bosphorus. The new emperor handed over to his allies the castle of their foes, which they tore down with jubilations, and now it was their turn to send its stones as trophies to Genoa. Mutual hate waxed fiercer than ever. No merchant fleet of either state could go to sea without convoy, and wherever their ships met, they fought. It was something like the state of things between Spain and England in the days of Drake. The energy and capacity of the Genoese seemed to rise with their success, and both in seamanship and in splendor they began almost to surpass their old rivals. The fall of Acre, 1291, and the total expulsion of the Franks from Syria in great measure barred the southern routes of Indian trade, whilst the predominance of Genoa in the Uxine more or less obstructed the free access of her rival to the northern routes by Trebizond and Tana. Truces were made and renewed, but the old fire still smoldered. In the spring of 1294 it broke into flame, in consequence of the seizure in the Grecian seas of three Genoese vessels by a Venetian fleet. This led to an action with a Genoese convoy which sought redress. The fight took place off Ayas in the Gulf of Scandaron, 
and though the Genoese were inferior in strength by one-third, they gained a signal victory, capturing all but three of the Venetian galleys with rich cargoes, including that of Marco Basilio, or Basiago, the Commodore. This victory over their haughty foe was in its completeness evidently a surprise to the Genoese, as well as a source of immense exultation, which is vigorously expressed in a ballad of the day written in a stirring salt-water rhythm. It represents the Venetians, as they enter the bay, in arrogant mirth reviling the Genoese with very unsavory epithets, as having deserted their ships to skulk on shore. They are described as saying, Off they've slunk, and left us nothing. We shall get nor prize nor praise. Nothing save those crazy timbers, only fit to make a blaze. So they advance carelessly. On they come. But lo, their blunder! when our lads start up anon, breaking out like unchained lions, with a roar, fall on, fall on. After relating the battle and the thoroughness of the victory, ending in the conflagration of five-and-twenty captured galleys, the poet concludes by an admonition to the enemy to moderate his pride and curb his arrogant tongue, harping on the obnoxious epithet Porci la Proxy, which seems to have galled the Genoese. He concludes, nor can I at all remember, ever to have heard the story, of a fight wherein the victors reap so rich a meed of glory. The community of Genoa decreed that the victory should be commemorated by the annual presentation of a gold pall to the monastery of St. Germans, the saint on whose feast, 28th May, it had been won. The startling news was received at Venice, with wrath and grief, for the flower of their navy had perished, and all energies were bent at once to raise an overwhelming force. The Pope, Boniface VIII, interfered as arbitrator, calling for plenipotentiaries from both sides, but spirits were too much inflamed, and this mediation came to naught. Further outrages on both sides occurred in 1296. The Genoese residences at Pera were fired, their great alum works on the coast of Anatolia were devastated, and Caffa was stormed and sacked, whilst on the other hand a number of the Venetians at Constantinople were massacred by the Genoese, and Marco Bembo, their balio, was flung from a housetop. Amid such events, the fire of enmity between the cities waxed hotter and hotter. In 1298, the Genoese made elaborate preparations for a great blow at the enemy, and fitted out a powerful fleet which they placed under the command of Lambda Doria, a younger brother of Umberto of that illustrious house, under whom he had served fourteen years before in the great rout of the Pisans at Meloria. The rendezvous of the fleet was in the Gulf of Spezia, as we learn from the same pithy Genoese poet who celebrated Aeus. This time the Genoese were bent on bearding St. Mark's lion in his own den, and after touching at Messina they steered straight for the Adriatic. Now, as the stern on Toronto bears, pull with a will, and please the Lord, let them who bragged with fire and sword to waste our homesteads, look to theirs. On their entering the gulf, a great storm dispersed the fleet. The admiral with twenty of his galleys got into port at Antivari, on the Albanian coast, and next day was rejoined by fifty-eight more, with which he scoured the Dalmatian shore, plundering all Venetian property. Some sixteen of his galleys were still missing when he reached the island of Corzola, or Scorzola, as the more popular name seems to have been, the black corsiera of the ancients the ancient town of which, a rich and flourishing place, the Genoese took and burned. Thus they were engaged when word came that the Venetian fleet was in sight. Venice, on first hearing of the Genoese armament, sent Andrea Dandolo with a large force to join and supersede Maffeo Perolini, 
who was already cruising with a squadron in the Ionian Sea, and, on receiving further information of the strength of the hostile expedition, the Signori hastily equipped thirty-two more galleys in Chioggia and the ports of Dalmatia, and dispatched them to join Dandalo, making the whole number under his command up to something like ninety-five. Recent drafts had apparently told heavily upon the Venetian sources of enlistment, and it is stated that many of the compliments were made up of rustics swept in haste from the Uganian hills. To this the Genoese poet seems to allude, alleging that the Venetians, in spite of their haughty language, had to go begging for men and money up and down Lombardy. Did we do like that, think you, he adds? Beat up for aliens? We indeed? When lacked we home-born Genoese? Search all the seas, no salts like these, for courage, sea-craft, wit, at need. Of one of the Venetian galleys, probably in the fleet which sailed under Dandalo's immediate command, went Marco Polo, as Sopracamita, or gentleman commander. It was on the afternoon of Saturday, the 6th September, that the Genoese saw the Venetian fleet approaching, but, as sunset was not far off, both sides tacitly agreed to defer the engagement. The Genoese would appear to have occupied a position near the eastern end of the island of Cozzola, with the peninsula of Savioncello behind them, and Medella on their left, whilst the Venetians advanced along the south side of Cozzola. According to Venetian accounts, the Genoese were staggered at the sight of the Venetian armaments, and sent more than once to seek terms, offering finally to surrender galleys and munitions of war if the crews were allowed to depart. This is an improbable story, and that of the Genoese ballad seems more like the truth. Doria, it says, held a council of his captains in the evening at which they all voted for attack, while the Venetians, with that overweening sense of superiority which at this time is reflected in their own annals as distinctly as in those of their enemies, kept scout vessels out to watch that the Genoese fleet, which they looked on as already their own, did not steal away in the darkness. A vain imagination, says the poet, blind error of vainglorious men, to dream that we should seek to flee, after those weary leagues of sea crossed, but to hunt them in their den. The battle began early on Sunday, and lasted till the afternoon. The Venetians had the wind in their favor, but the morning sun in their eyes. They made the attack, and with great impetuosity captured ten Genoese galleys. But they pressed on too wildly, as some of their vessels ran aground. One of their galleys, too, being taken, was cleared of her crew and turned against the Venetians. These incidents caused confusion among the assailants. The Genoese, who had begun to give way, took fresh heart, formed a close column, and advanced boldly through the Venetian line, already in disorder. The sun had begun to decline when there appeared on the Venetian flank the fifteen or sixteen missing galleys of Doria's fleet, and fell upon it with fresh force. This decided the action. The Genoese gained a complete victory, capturing all but a few of the Venetian galleys, and including the flagship with Dandalo. The Genoese themselves lost heavily, especially in the early part of the action, and Lambda Doria's eldest son Octavian is said to have fallen on board his father's vessel. The number of prisoners taken was over seven thousand, and among these was Marco Polo. The prisoners, even of the highest rank, appear to have been chained. Dandalo, in despair at his defeat, and at the prospect of being carried captive into Genoa, refused food, and ended by dashing his head against a bench. A Genoese account asserts that a noble funeral was given him after the arrival of the fleet at Genoa, which took place on the evening of the 16th October. It was received with great rejoicing, and the city voted the annual presentation of a pallium of gold brocade to the altar of the Virgin in the church of St. Matthew on every 8th of September, the Madonna's Day, on the eve of which the battle had been won. 
to the admiral himself a palace was decreed it still stands opposite the church of st matthew though it has passed from the possession of the family on the striped marble facades both of the church and of the palace inscriptions of that age in excellent presentation still commemorate lambda's achievement maluk al-mansur the mameluk sultan of egypt as an enemy of venice sent a complimentary letter to doria accompanied by costly presents the latter died at savona seventeenth october thirteen twenty three a few months before the most illustrious of his prisoners and his bones were laid in a sarcophagus which may still be seen forming the sill of one of the windows of st matteo on the right as you enter over this sarcophagus stood the bust of lambda till seventeen ninety seven when the mob of genoa in idiotic imitation of the french proceedings of that age threw it down all of lambda's six sons had fought with him at maloria in twelve ninety one one of them Tedicio went forth into the Atlantic in company with Ogolino Vivaldi on a voyage of discovery, and never returned. Through Caesar, the youngest, this branch of the family still survives, bearing the distinctive surname of Lambda Doria. As to the treatment of the prisoners, accounts differ, a thing usual in such cases. The Genoese poet asserts that the hearts of his countrymen were touched, and that the captives were treated with compassionate courtesy. Navagerio the Venetian, on the other hand, declares that most of them died of hunger. Howsoever they may have been treated, here was Marco Polo, one of those many thousand prisoners in Genoa, and here, before long, he appears to have made acquaintance with a man of literary propensities, whose destiny had brought him into the like plight, by name Orsticano, or Orsticello, of Pisa. It was this person, perhaps, who persuaded the traveler to defer no longer the reduction to writing of his notable experiences. But in any case, it was he who wrote down those experiences at Marco's dictation. It is he, therefore, to whom we owe the preservation of this record, and possibly even that of the traveler's very memory. This makes the Genoese imprisonment so important an episode in Polo's biography. To Rusticano we shall presently reoccur but let us first bring to a conclusion what may be gathered as to the duration of Polo's imprisonment. It does not appear whether Pope Boniface made any new effort for accommodation between the republics, but other Italian princes did interpose, and Matteo Visconti, captain-general of Milan, styling himself vicar-general in the Holy Roman Empire in Lombardy, was accepted as mediator, along with the community of Milan. Ambassadors from both states presented themselves at that city, and on the 25th May, 1299, they signed the terms of a peace. These terms were perfectly honorable to Venice, being absolutely equal and reciprocal, from which one is apt to conclude that the damage to the city of the sea was rather to their pride than to their power. The success of Genoa, in fact, having been followed up by no systematic attack upon Venetian commerce. Among the terms was the mutual release of prisoners on a day to be fixed by Visconti after the completion of all formalities. This day is not recorded, but as the treaty was ratified by the Doge of Venice on the 1st July, and the latest extant document concerned with the formalities appears to be dated 18th July, we may believe that before the end of August, Marco Polo was restored to the family mansion in St. Giovanni Cristostomo. Something further requires to be said before quitting this event in our traveler's life. For we confess that a critical reader may have some justification in asking what evidence there is that Marco Polo ever fought at Corzola, and ever was carried a prisoner to Genoa from that unfortunate action. A learned Frenchman, whom we shall have to quote freely in the immediately ensuing pages, does not venture to be more precise in reference to the meeting of Polo and Rusticano than to say of the latter, In 1298, being in durance in the prison of Genoa, he there became acquainted with Marco Polo, 
whom the Genoese had deprived of his liberty from motives equally unknown. To those who have no relish for biographies that round the meagre skeleton of authentic facts with a plump padding of what might have been, this sentence of Pauline Paris is quite refreshing in its stern limitation to positive knowledge, and certainly no contemporary authority has yet been found for the capture of our traveller at Cozzola. Still, I think that the fact is beyond reasonable doubt. Ramusio's biographical notices certainly contain many errors of detail, and some, such as the many years' interval which he sets between the Battle of Cortzola and Marco's return, are errors which a very little trouble would have enabled him to eschew. But still, it does seem reasonable to believe that the main fact of Marco's command of a galley at Cortzola, and capture there, was derived from a genuine tradition, if not from documents. Let us then turn to the words which close Rusticano's preamble. Lequel, Monsieur Marc, puis demeurant en le châtre de Gênes, fit retraire toutes ces choses à Monsieur Rustacien de Pise, qu'en celle-même châtre était, autant qu'il avait douze cent quatre-vingt-dix-huit ans que Jésus eût vécu. These words are at least thoroughly consistent with Marco's capture at Cordzola, as regards both the position in which they present him, and the year in which he is thus presented. There is, however, another piece of evidence, though it is curiously indirect. The Dominican friar Japco of Acqui was a contemporary of Polo's, and was the author of a somewhat obscure chronicle called Amajo Mundi. Now this chronicle does contain mention of Marco's capture in action by the Genoese, but attributes it to a different action from Cortzola, and one fought at a time when Polo could not have been present. The passage runs as follows in a manuscript of the Ambrosian Library, according to an extract given by Baldelli Bone. In the year of Christ, 1296, in the time of Pope Boniface VI, of whom we have spoken above, a battle was fought in Armenia, at the place called Deaz, between fifteen galleys of the Genoese merchants, and twenty-five of the Venetian merchants, and after a great fight the galleys of the Venetians were beaten, and the crews all slain or taken, and among them was taken Monsieur Marco the Venetian, who was in company with those merchants, and who was called Malono, which is as much as to say a thousand thousand pounds, for so goes the phrase in Venice. So this Monsieur Marco Malono, the Venetian, with the other Venetian prisoners, is carried off to the prison of Genoa, and there kept for a long time. This Messer Marco was a long time with his father and uncle in Tartare, and he saw there many things, and made much wealth, and also learned many things, for he was a man of ability. And so, being in prison at Genoa, he made a book concerning the great wonders of the world, i.e., concerning such of them as he had seen. And what he told in the book was not as much as he had really seen, because the tongues of detractors, who, being ready to impose their own lies on others, are over-hasty to set down as lies what they in their perversity disbelieve or do not understand. And because there are many great and strange things in that book, which are reckoned past all credence, he was asked by his friends on his deathbed to correct the book by removing everything that went beyond the facts. To which his reply was that he had not told one half of what he had really seen. This statement concerning the capture of Marco at the Battle of Ayas is one which cannot be true, for we know that he did not reach Venice until 1295, traveling from Persia by way of Trebizond and the Bosphorus, whilst the Battle of Ayas, of which we have purposely given some detail, was fought in May 1294. The date 1296 assigned to it in the preceding extract has given rise to some unprofitable discussion. Could that date be accepted, no doubt it would enable us also to accept this, the sole statement from the traveller's own age of the circumstances which brought him into a Genoese prison. It would enable us to place that imprisonment within a few months of his return from the East. 
and to extend its duration to three years, points which would thus accord better with the general tenor of Ramusio's tradition than the capture of Cozzola. But the matter is not open to such a solution. The date of the Battle of Ayas is not more doubtful than that of the Battle of the Nile. It is clearly stated by several independent chroniclers, and is carefully established in the ballad which we have quoted above. We shall see repeatedly in the course of this book how uncertain are the transcriptions of dates in Roman numerals, and in the present case, the 96 is as certainly a mistake for 94, as is Boniface the Sixth in the same quotation, a mistake for Boniface the Eighth. But though we cannot accept the statement that Polo was taken prisoner at Ias in the spring of 1294, we may accept the passage as evidence from a contemporary source that he was taken prisoner in some sea fight with the Genoese, and thus admit it in corroboration of the Romusian tradition of his capture in a sea fight at Cordzola in 1298, which is perfectly consistent with all other facts in our possession. End of section 6. Recording by Todd.